Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Magnificent Whiskers. Please remember to like and subscribe, and we would be so appreciative if you left us a review on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen to the podcast. Our goal here is to open a conversation and continue that conversation with you, our listener. To that end, you can reach us at Gmail with magnificentwhiskers at gmail.com. We're on Instagram using Whiskers Podcast and on Twitter at MagWhisk. We would love to hear from you, so please don't hesitate. Uh, you know, send us a, a review, a comment. Please get involved in the conversation. Thanks again. Have a wonderful day. Welcome to a very special road trip edition of Magnificent Whiskers. Colby and I, uh, it's about 11-ish p.m., and we are on the road to go and pick up my mother-in-law so she can spend the Christmas holiday with us. Uh, it's entirely possible that every single moment of this conversation may have to be scrapped because who knows what kind of background noise we're dealing with, but hopefully our, uh, our award-winning star engineer, Amy, will be able to clean this shit up a little bit so that, uh, so that we don't lose it all. Fix it in post. We'll fix it in post, exactly. So we are, uh, we're driving down the highway right now, and uh, it was inevitable that Colby and I were going to have conversations because um, that's what we do. By the way, that's going to be one of our first shirts. Fix it in post. <laughs> Although, honestly, the amount of things that I've actually fixed, probably not as high as they should be. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and turn my uh, ringer off right now so we aren't interrupted by any of that nonsense. Yeah. There, uh, there's a charm to uh, sloppiness sometimes. Sometimes. It, well, it's... Uh, in the same way that a lot of a lot of communities, like enthusiast communities for any medium, be it like TV, especially music, sort of builds itself around the flaws of the past. Okay. Uh, like, at a certain point, once you gain the ability to erase the flaws, there's a nostalgia for those flaws. So, gotcha. uh, uh, one of the posts that I read about it was talking about how like um, the the breaking scraggly vocals of blues are a voice that has too much emotion to contain it properly or how people miss the uh, the sound that vinyl makes so they go back to vinyl uh, people miss the scratchy compressed sound of 80s synth so that came back into vogue, and now uh, things like uh, bit I'm tones. I'm one of those people, by the way. Yeah, but like bit, <laughs> bit tones are now a nostalgic thing. As soon as we gain the ability to overcome something, someone misses that. Uh, and that's true of almost any medium. No, yeah, uh, I, I would agree with that. And I think music is probably one of our more culturally prevalent uh, examples of that sort of thing. Like you had said, people going back to vinyl because they missed the sounds that it made. I mean, I think, and I feel like you and I have discussed this a little bit before too. Um, I, th I think that some of it is the sound quality and kind of the warmer tones that you get from that archaic form of, of recording and playback. That's fair. Uh, but that's exactly what you were saying, right? It's yeah. not just the flaws, but it's also those that, that extra little something that you just aren't going to get from a CD or an MP3 or MP4. And those are things that you can simulate but at that point, why not just use Do the original, yeah. some people would say. And now there are some mediums where it's like, uh, I, I've heard people argue that uh, certain, say, audio solutions. Audio is a big one 
when it comes to this sort of thing, but people will argue that, like, oh, any kind of noise isolation or noise altering, you are changing the way the music uh, was made. That's not how the creator intended it. That's ruining the music. Like when they remaster it and stuff like that? Or, like, depending on the sound equipment you use, like, certain headphones will have different levels of compression or things like that. Mm-hmm. And it, they consider it a change to the music, and they consider it almost a little sacrilegious Okay. to go that far. It's like, the music is supposed to sound the way it sounds. Don't change it. That's the, that's the creator's job. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I can follow that. Everybody heard you over that. <laughs> so many. There's gonna be so much background noise. I'm so. I'm so excited. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, people will love it. I looked at your. So I looked at the dash here. Okay. Or I looked not the dash at the. Oops. Oh God! Stop it! Oh, I didn't mean to do it. Stop the thing. <laughs> what are you trying to do? I it's... wanted to turn that light back on that I just had on. We we are in my vehicle. He is driving. It's true. It's, it's a little odd. I tried to. It won't. Why? Oh, you have to turn it on. I did. It says cruise. Okay. So you have to do set. Oh, you have to do set. There it is. Okay. <laughs> All right. Kill that thing. Thank you. All right. Kill that it's... instead of us. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> especially. Ooh. Yeah. So thankfully, uh, Carrie's mom decided that she was going to come and stay with us for a little while leading up into Christmas. And I'm sure she'll bounce around with some of the other people too. But, um... This was a very last-minute decision. Yeah. Like my entire life is, by the seat of my pants. I mean, it's it's just how we have to live. It is. Finally got to, finally got to sit down and watch uh, Avengers um, uh, Infinity War. Oh, okay. I know I had seen it. I went to the theaters to see it, if I'm not mistaken. Which okay. I maybe... No, 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 I'm pretty certain I did. Well, anyway. Yeah, I went to the theaters to see that, but I got... We, it was it was on the PlayStation Network for like five bucks, so I read the nice. and Carrie and I sat down and watched it tonight. Got to spend some time together. I am so far behind. Yeah, we discussed that before. You have like twenty five movies to watch, right? It, it's like fifteen, it's fifteen or sixteen. Man. I just I don't get to watch movies. I know. Priorities. Yeah, and they're not particularly high on it anymore, unfortunately. Partially, one big thing is so much of movies and whatnot, I get filtered to me through the internet. Yeah, see, I don't allow uh, for that to shows. happen. That's why I stay off of things like Reddit. Uh, I don't even spend much time on Reddit. It's just people talk about it so much everywhere. But then I'm also the kind of person where I, not only do I not mind, I kind of enjoy spoilers. I'll never understand that. Be- because it, by knowing something about it going in, it gives me more time to under to like dissect it and see what's going on. I'm not an in the moment guy. Clearly, <laughs> I I don't I don't care about the first time I experience something. I care about understanding it. I can respect that. I'm just not that way at all. It for me, it almost builds up more anticipation because I'm like, I know this is gonna happen. Let me see it. And I enjoy that. Yeah, I, not me. Uh, I very much so enjoy that um, the aspect of getting it for the first time and that first time experience and the shock and awe value and all of the above. Like that's that's the way that I prefer to experience um, 
cinema specifically, whether it be or or TV in general. You know, I I, I visual just, mediums. I hate spoilers. That's just I do. I also don't like being the guy who spoils something. Yeah. Uh, especially because of how much I disdain it myself. Like it's just not. There. I'm not okay with it. There have been a few times where I have specifically been very careful not to spoil something. Um, because I know that you hate it so much. So much. Uh, I remember one time in particular was uh, How I Met Your Mother. We were watching How I Met Your Mother, and one of the episodes was had a very specific sequence that I knew from the internet. Okay. And realized what was happening, and I kind of freaked out. And you were just like, what the fuck? And I'm just like, I can't say, I can't say. <laughs> and afterwards, I was just like, I'm sorry, I, I, I didn't want to say anything. You're like, no, if you had done that, I would have killed you. Yeah, no, I remember that. If I'm not mistaken, that was the episode with Marshall, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Marshall. Yep, I would have ended yep. you. Yeah. And, and you know what, though? Here's the thing about that. If that would have been spoiled, that potentially could have ruined that episode for me for forever. And because you didn't spoil it, now every single time it comes on, it feels exactly like the first time I watched it. Even though I know what's coming, because I had that first time experience, it feels like the first time every time. Okay. So, and, and maybe that has a lot to do with why I prefer to just have it remain as pristine as possible. Because okay. then I can carry that experience with me repeatedly. So you're the kind of person who you... You very heavily identify your first experience with something with additional experiences of something. Apparently. Well, I guess okay. we just learned something about me. Yeah. I, I don't really watch movies more than once very often, though. I don't really consume anything more than once well, very often. You have such a laundry list of things you got to get to. Yeah, for one. Uh, it's actually a little weird because... I, I, I think it's a little bit because I when I was younger, my family was not particularly well off. And we very rarely had cable or any other means of watching TV. Right. So we usually had just a DVD player with with whatever DVDs we were able to get. Sometimes it was, like, a lot of times it was between 3 and 10 DVDs. Okay. So you very quickly figure out which ones you can tolerate watching that many times. (laughs) Uh, So I... uh, I watched, I could at one point recite iRobot from memory. God, I love that movie. From the beginning to the end, by memory. So good. It was good. Made uh, me want, made me want uh, sweet potato pie so bad. Yeah. And I hate sweet potatoes. <laughs> um, I, got, uh, I got my first pair of Chucks after that movie. Not because of that movie necessarily, but I'm sure, it didn't, I'm sure it didn't hurt. Yeah, it couldn't have hurt. Um, uh, that I watched almost religiously because it was one of the only ones I could stand that we had at the time. So, fun story, and I don't know if I've ever shared this with you or not. Uh, that movie came out shortly, like a year or two after my dad had passed away. Okay. And uh, and so it was just my mom, my, uh, my little brother and I living in the house. And her and I went to Walmart for something. Who knows what we were shopping. Christmas was around the corner, or my birthday was around the corner. I can't remember which, but I was like, hey, uh, just so that I can give you a visual representation, you know, I've got a couple of films that I would like uh, for, for this occasion. Would you come look at them with me? And she was like, sure. So it was like iRobot, and there were like three or four other ones, and honestly, I can't even remember which ones they were other than that off the top of my head. But, I, but we went over, and I was like, I want that, I want that, I want that, I want that, I want that. 
And she was like, okay. And picked them all up off the shelf and bought them on the spot. Okay. And I just took them home and watched them. And I was like, wow, okay. That was not how I expected that to go at all. Thank you very much. Yeah. That was a really fun experience. Those are always nice. Um, I remember watching The Lord of the Rings, the first, the Fellowship of the Ring, the first one, on insane amount. But after a while, like... It's nice because it's a good long movie, so it can eat up a lot of time. Yeah. And it's nice and calm, so you can kind of have it on in the background without messing things up too much. Fair. But uh, what I ended up watching significantly more was, I've probably said it before on the podcast because I love it so much, but the appendices for that was a documentary called There and Back Again, which... You talked about that when we were talking about accents. Yes. Uh, If you haven't watched, is a fantastic documentary... And there's so much fun trivia and lore about not just uh, Tolkien's work in general, but specifically about the making of that film. It's just incredible. Um, It was one of the places where I really developed my love of practical effects and puppetry and things like that. Because they just use so much practical effects for that movie. Like, an insane amount of what you see in that movie, they actually built. Yeah, that's incredible. Like, pretty much every landscape was built. Uh, They started using a term they called bigotures. Because their miniature models sometimes took up entire sound stages. Wow. That's... Wow. I do remember that they used camera tricks to give you the illusion of Gandalf being so much taller than the Hobbits Yeah, they versus used, using computer-generated effects. They used a lot of camera tricks. They used a lot of body doubles. Yep. This is one of those places where combining practical and digital effects worked really well. So they would use a body double for a lot of the scenes with the Hobbits, for instance, or would use body doubles if, say, the hobbits were, like, the focus of the scene, they would use body doubles for the humans who were significantly taller. Right. Like, incredibly tall people for the humans in Gandalf. Um, And then they would, in post-production, they would digitally apply the uh, actor's face to the stunt double. Okay. uh, And sort of of augment them like that. Uh, There was a lot of forced perspective yeah, that's what I was talking about. Yeah, the there, force there was a lot of force perspective. Uh, they got really complicated with it, too. Like, they would use multiple sliding carts so that as the camera moved, it caused the platforms that, say, two different tables were on at different uh, distances and sizes to also move to keep them in line. Uh, well, yeah, you would need nothing short of complicated calculus uh, equations to be able to make that flow. But if you could make it work... Which yeah. they did. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that was the work of what they call gaffers. Gaffers are the lighting specialists in film and stage mm-hmm. and things like that. And they also work with a lot of uh, perspective because they understand lighting. Uh, and forced perspective is basically just understanding light and how people see. Yeah. And so they did a lot of work with that. And it, it just comes through so well because... Having something physical there, even if you then augment it, makes everything so much more real because then you don't have to alter anything else. Like, if you have a giant CG robot in a scene, 
stomping across the ground, you have to add the effects of everything that that would do. Like trees that he would it would push by, how it would upset the ground, cracks that would form, how things would like bounce around as it dropped in. But if you actually have like a giant thing like pounding down the road, you just, so fucking yeah, along. you just have to digitally make the machine around it. Yeah. And it I, makes a big difference. Unpopular opinion, I actually don't like that movie, any of them. It's like, obviously I'm a fan of, you know, high fantasy and, uh, and things that are very Lord of the Rings-like, but I just, I never really dug the movies, and I try not to be the kind of person who's negatively impacted by the popularity of something, but I don't know if it, that's what it was or, or what it was, but for whatever reason, like, I could have taken them or left them, I'm not... They are they are not for everyone. Nothing is for everyone. Obviously, I don't I don't believe. But uh, the Lord of the Rings definitely was it was a labor of love, which doesn't always mean that everyone's gonna love it. Yeah, there were a lot of cool things in it. Uh, a lot of things that I certainly enjoyed quite a lot. I love Liv Tyler. Liv, so Liv Tyler did there. a really good job in that, and they actually created. So much more material for uh, uh, Arwen. Arwen, forget which one. There's an Arwen and an Arwen, and God, if I can remember which is which. Yeah, I don't know that it matters. Uh, I mean, I'm sure it matters to somebody, and, and the fact that I said that is, is <laughs> I'm sure, a lynchable offense on some level. But yeah, but um, they uh, they created so much more material for her character for the movies because. She, they were just like, she does such an amazing job. Like, we can't limit her to what the book has for her. Right. Like, Give her more material. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's an amazing documentary. I love documentaries in general. Yeah, so I have to agree with that. And with my eldest uh, child being essentially homeschooled, uh, documentaries are going to be a large part of her curriculum. Yeah. We all love movies in our household. And, uh, and I think that as long as the documentary is well made, she's going to be able to get into it. And there's actually been a couple of instances where either I've watched something and we've had a discussion on it, or we got the opportunity to watch something together. And, uh, and that's schoolwork, man. Yeah. It's good stuff. Uh, but I'm with you. I love, I watched a documentary a couple months ago on, uh, Tesla. Which, Which is just, always interesting. Yeah, it just it just reaffirmed my love for that man and my hatred for Thomas Edison. <laughs> um, I I love documentaries about weird things. Okay. Uh, or like like obviously any documentary is supposed to reveal things that weren't known about something. But you know there are some documentaries that are like I can't I generally I can't stand World War II documentaries. Because it's the There's same so many. thing. And it's always the same thing. Oh, my God. You're not telling us anything new. Oh, my God. Yeah, uh, like, anybody who would make a World War II documentary at this point, like, what point are you trying to get across? Yeah. We are aware. Now, I'm certain that there's a that, that, that somebody out there might be able and willing to make a documentary focusing on the similarities between a certain world power leader at that time and a certain world power leader during our time and some of the steps that I'm, they're taking. I'm sure. But that would be fun and new interesting information. And like there there is there are always individual stories. Like 
you can always break things down to another person's I'm, story. I'm sure Anne or, Frank wasn't the only one who wrote a diary. Uh, for instance, and there's obviously going to be, you know, individual soldiers who have fascinating stories. But at a certain point, I just... There's only so much I can know about something that I don't care that much about. Uh, but anything that is interesting, I love... I mean, I love trivia in general. I just love knowing a little bit about everything. Indeed, me too. Uh, so I, I love finding documentaries about things I've never seen before or don't know about. I've managed to avoid the ancient aliens uh, uh, rabbit hole. Because I... every time it comes up, I'm like, oh my god, this is so interesting. Uh, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to end up tripping and falling down that bitch at some point. My, my issue with anything about ancient aliens is that... All of their evidence is, we don't know, so I'm telling you. Well, I, I really can't say anything about that. I, I don't know that that's... You're, you're saying that everything that you've come into contact with so far that involves the idea of aliens or ancient aliens specifically, that that's their basis of truth, is that we don't know, so this is what like we're just writing in our own history? Yeah, like... Because I, I gotta tell you, like the first episode of Ancient Aliens, that I keep turning my head toward you and then realizing that the microphone is on my left shoulder. And anyway, that, and that you're also driving. Well, that too. But uh... <laughs> but, but anyway, yeah. They're, yeah they're... No, well, in the first episode that I was watching, like they were just like piling up mountains of evidence, um, ancient texts and uh, cave paintings and like all kinds of stuff like they're, that. They're the sort of thing that I find very. It's a good thought exercise. It's a good speculation. But way too many people take that speculation for for evidence. Right. Uh, is one of my favorite one of my favorite sayings about intelligence is that on the the sign of an intelligent mind is the ability to consider something without accepting it as fact. Yeah. And I think that's something that way too many people can't do. Okay. If, if they can't cons- if they if they can't conceptualize it, they cannot accept it, and if they can conceptualize it, they can't consider that it's not true. If it's if it's something that they can understand, they accept it as absolute fact. Yeah, that that's has why, to, that has to suck. Well, that, that's why so many conspiracy theories are so hard to disprove to somebody who believes them. Because once they've accepted that this is possible... That anything, it's the only truth. Yes. And doing anything to disprove it... It's fake is, news. It's just, it's just reinforcing their idea that they are smarter than whoever has said that thing. Yep, there, there's I've come a huge, into contact with that. There's a huge vein in the conspiracy community of outsmarting the the government usually, but outsmarting people. Right. Be, the the idea that you just ain't awoke enough. Yeah, I'm the idea that I'm the one who was smart enough and brave enough to believe this thing that you just can't accept, and it's uh, it just it it takes this dichotomous acceptance that. Basically, every conspiracy requires the people involved in it to be absolutely powerful with the ability to do literally anything to keep it hidden 
but so incompetent that you were able to figure it out and the, and people are allowed and to just put alone, it on YouTube? That fact alone doesn't give them the pause to go, wait a minute, something about this doesn't smell right. Yeah, like, I, 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 I love the idea of conspiracy theories, and indeed I do enjoy conspiracy theories themselves. It, it definitely gives you a bit of scope into um, kind of what we feel people are really capable of. And also, yeah. and I, I don't discount any particular theory. No. I mean, there are... Okay, that's not true. There definitely are some where I'm like, yeah, no, that's definitely bullshit. Like the moon like the, the moon landing being fake. Exactly. We yeah. have clear evidence there's, of that happening. There's absolute proof that is verifiable that... that guys, that happened. Let's yeah. just be real. But like chemtrails and like there there are there Hitler are clear... surviving and you know that kind of stuff. It's yeah. well, it's it's the same kind of thing that I bring up anytime people uh, it, it, when I watch anything about like ghosts or especially mediums who like tell people that they've communicated with their loved ones. I hate that because those people are. Being manipulated so badly. So badly. And whenever people talk to me about this who really believe in it, they're like, uh, how can you say that this isn't true? And my answer is, I can't say that it's not true, but I can say that I have an answer to it that doesn't require me to make the logical leap of accepting something that isn't provable. Right. Like, if accepting, oh, that cold feeling you get at night is ghosts uh, and ghosts leave behind an ectoplasm. Believing that ectoplasm exists requires me to believe that ghosts exist. So if you have to believe one ludicrous thing in order for your statement to be true, it's probably not true. And that's my thing with a lot of the ancient alien stuff is there are practical answers that don't require me to accept that Aliens visited people centuries or millennia ago and left no other trace than the etchings on stone. Well, but that's not entirely true. They definitely, like, the theory is they absolutely did leave additional traces. Um, and see, here's the thing. I, I don't, I, I definitely put a healthy dash, if you will, or a healthy amount of, of the point that you just made into my thought process when I'm examining conspiracy theories. But I'm also of the mindset that the absence of proof is not the proof of absence. And that is so. Fair. And, and that's my preferred way to view essentially everything. Uh, but with enough oversight of the idea that, yeah, but it probably... What the hell? What's up? Weird. Did you kill my car? I, I did okay. not. It was. I was trying to reset the uh, the cruise ah. and somehow managed to turn it off. Ah, and uh, it confused me a bit. Yeah, but anyway, but anyway, so <laughs> so yeah. So my preferred way to examine that sort of thing is to, from the perspective that it is possible, yeah. and not necessarily to disprove it, but to accept as much of it as truth, not as truth, but as possible. And but you are also the kind of person who can very much separate out what is a a consideration and like a postulation from 
accepting it as truth or evidence. Exactly. I'm not going around, you know, something that this is the absolute truth either. Oh, my... One of the things that always gets me in these conversations, especially when I'm talking to, like, flat earthers. <laughs> oh, Those God. motherfuckers. Flat earthers. Guys, uh, seriously. Uh, when, Whenever... Uh, whenever I'm having a discussion with uh, someone who is a flat earther, they ask me for evidence, and I give them evidence, and they they come back with that's not evidence. And this is actually a big thing for a lot of people: is that a lot of people don't actually understand what evidence is. Yeah. They there is this belief that evidence means proving something absolutely without a doubt. And it's a direct line from A to B. This proves this. And that's and not that's, how it works. No, ev- evidence is a series of things that builds a scenario and a description. Correct. So, like, uh, the way I described it is uh, you're not going to, you're, not, you're never going to be able to uh, make a machine where you press a button and it spits out an answer that says, this is this dinosaur to prove that dinosaurs existed and how animals evolved. Right. We're, we're never going to be able to do that. But we can look at all of the things around us and from that, those things, look at what is consistent and from that, we build models. From those models, we test them against everything else that we and can that find. And that is a very key Factor to the entire process is a testable Test model. Th- exactly. A, a testable model is the basis of science as we know it. It is the idea that, and that's why there's a big difference between an idea and a theory. Like a theory is something that has been rigorously tested over and over and in every possible scenario. Otherwise, then, it's a hypothesis. Yeah, exactly. In every possible scenario that we've been able to test has been found to be true. An idea is just that. It, it, that is the that is the first part of the theory. And a lot of people like to make that leap from idea to uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it's also like a lot of say conservative Christianity makes a big deal about how they they make this separation between sciences and they call it the observable sciences and the unobservable sciences, saying that any any like geology or paleontology can't be observed or like knowing about uh, like physics at the beginning of time uh, around the Big Bang. They say that's unobservable. You're just guessing. And it's like, no, we are not guessing. There is guessing involved, but then we test that rigorously. And if a single thing goes wrong, if at any point, any part of it is even possibly proven false. The whole thing gets scrapped and started over from the beginning. Yep. That's why we use it because it has worked so consistently. And Science. and one of the other important parts is that it creates predictable models. With it, you can say, okay, now that we figured all this out, this should also be true. Right. And then you test that and see if that is true. And that's such an important part of the process that people who aren't involved in the sciences at anything more than like a middle school or high school level never understand, never get to experience. 
Yeah, I, I mean, to be fair, I, I think I would probably include myself in the group of people who aren't involved in the sciences outside of the high school level. No, but you are, you're an enthusiast. You That's like, fair. You like to know about it, even if you don't necessarily know how to do it. Yeah. And you have a respect for that process. I really super do. Whereas a lot of people don't. I don't understand how a person in the year 2018 can look at science and be like, that's not real. Be- and they do it. They do it so frequently. Uh, it's it's partially because a lot of our media has crafted this idea of... Um, there's a there's a term for it. It is... I bet there is. <laughs> um, brilliance unmarred by... Uh, what is it? Oh, yeah. Brilliance we've un- talked about yeah, this before. Brilliance unmarred by expertise. And you see it a lot in any kind of, especially science fiction film. You know, all of the experts can't figure it out. It's, uh, but, it's but Armageddon. The, yeah. But the experts can't figure it out. But then the janitor comes in and is like, oh, yeah, that's the problem. That's just it, like a carburetor. You just yeah. need to do the thing with the other thing. That's, that's exactly. They actually even kind of say it out loud So in Armageddon. Yeah. When Bruce Willis's character gets pulled in and he's... Now, he is touted as a brilliant engineer. Yeah. And he was able to build these, like, revolutionary drill bits. And yeah. they and just is, so happen to he has experience to... in that. Exactly. And for those of you who actually, for whatever fucking reason, have lived under a rock and haven't seen Armageddon, it's... his character, or uh, basically NASA, fig- finds out that there is this giant world-ending asteroid or meteorite or what have you that's on its way to Earth. And the only way for them to be able to uh, save the planet is to drill down X amount of... Uh, distance into the center of the of the uh, heavenly body, plant a nuclear explosives, get off the rock, detonate the nuclear explosives, and it'll send to the two halves of the rock in opposite directions, thusly missing the planet. Well, the only people who could possibly do this are the roughnecks that are out there on an oil rig right now, doing the drilling. Doing the drilling, and somehow Harry not- Harry is somehow uh, the only guy on the planet that can actually get this done the right way. So he shows yeah. up. And somehow it's easier to train oil rig drillers to be astronauts than to train astronauts to be oil You're rig You're misremembering the film because what happens is they bring him in and they only want him. Yeah. They bring him in and he's like, all right, wait a minute. You guys are NASA. You're the guys who think it up and this is the best that you've got. You've got to be kidding me. So then he comes out and he's like, oh, you know, we built these machines based off your models. He's like, yeah, but these aren't my machines. Look at this. And he goes in and he starts tearing pieces out of it. Don't need this. This is useless. Yada, yada. Until it's like the most base version of what he created that it could possibly be. And all the extra what they're portraying as bullshit that NASA put in there, which really quite easily could have been the difference between, oh, I don't know, it overheating in space or not. Yeah, it's it's this idea that once you strip away all that all the un, all that unnecessary knowledge, yeah. anyone could figure this out. Right, exactly. And you're just like you're just too smart for your own good and letting it get in the way. Yeah, and, and that's that that is a mentality that is very very common in media and it's a fun trope it is but it's it's overplayed to the point where people people believe believe it can happen in real life it's it's that whole uh luke you've turned off your targeting computer you just gotta feel it like that's no you use the targeting computer but yeah no uh, the point that i was making before we get too far off and i forget was that 
uh, they brought him in and they're like, okay, well, you're going to have a team of the most highly trained and best uh, astronauts out there. And he's like, no, fuck that. You're going to bring in my team who are a bunch of fucking idiots and drug addicts and shit like that. And you're going to train them to be astronauts and you're going to do it in two weeks. Yeah. And like, that's so dumb. No, it's like, so, such but, a bad idea. But that's, that's the point is he believes in his idiot redneck oil rig crew more than he believes in the highly brilliant and trained NASA scientists. Yes, but there's also an argument for the idea that he knows and trusts those guys. Yes. And doesn't know and can't trust the other guys. There is a lot more that can go into that, like, on on that individual level, but the, the sentiment and the mentality is everywhere. Agreed. And, uh, you also see it. It's also one of the core principles behind, like, a lot of hero on a journey, journey storytelling is the untrained kid is suddenly out of nowhere the best at the thing, or or is uh, prophesied to be the best, and it's his destiny, and he's the only one who can do it, even though he has absolutely no skill in it whatsoever. Uh-huh. So he just needs to be trained by the best that there's ever been, but. He, but his aptitude allows him to absorb that knowledge faster than anybody else possibly could have. Yeah, uh, and that sort of again, thing is... super fun trope. It is, but it's been played so much that, again, people believe it. Yeah. And, uh, fuck, I believe it sometimes. Yeah, like, I'm, well, shit, I would like to believe that I'm that guy sometimes. Yeah. Like, come on, who wouldn't want to just wake up one morning and have this random, unique ability to be, and the only one on the planet, the only one in the universe who can do it. The aliens show up and somehow the random language that you've been using since you're a kid turns out to be their language. Or some shit like that. Like, that's just fun. Uh, And it's, but it's one of those things where... But it's dangerous. It it is. That's, it's something that a lot of people like to make fun of. Oh, that's dangerous, but it is. Like, the things that we portray in media very much affect the way that people perceive things. We'd all like to believe that we can tell the difference between fiction and nonfiction, but even the best non or the best fiction it makes us dream of being able to do those things. Yeah. Well, like one of the big examples I always like to use is uh, one of the very real side effects of the perception that a movie creates is Jaws. Yeah, uh, in the in the decade after Jaws was released, great white sharks were hunted almost to extinction, exclusively because of that movie. Before that, sharks weren't like a thing. No one cared or worried about sharks that much. It was like the one or two people a year who got attacked, usually died. It was it was legitimately tragic. But it's their home. It's the ocean. We're in it. it shit's gonna happen. But after Jaws. People hunted them until they almost died. Like, gone, gone. Now, I would like to believe, because we didn't have as much access to information back then as we do now, so I'd like to believe that if Jaws were released today, first of all, it wouldn't be, but uh, if it were, like, Sharknado happened and people didn't go out and hunt, hunt sharks down again, you know? No, like, that that was clearly so ridiculous that no one could, nobody could accept it for a possible Fair, thing. and Jaws felt like it was potentially more real, but yeah. my point is that I just don't think that people would have necessarily the same reaction today 
as they did then. Which, yeah. by the way, speaking of monsters, this reminds me, and I feel like you and I, uh, I, I may have shared this with you before. Did, did you know that they figured out, like, the Tibetan Yeti? They figured out what it is? Uh, it's a bear? Yeah. And then I read, I read a post that, like, because of the Latin terms that we use to do, to, for bear... They're like Arctic or something like that, or uh, Altai or something. You know? Did you yeah. read that? Where uh, so it's like the like Antarctica is like bear, 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 yeah. or angry bear uh, or something like that. It's the, just uh, hilarious. I'll see if I can find it. So it, I, can post it, it. I think it's the uh, the grizzly bear uh, is like Arctis grizzly uh, ursus or something like Ar- that. Arctis Arctis ursus. Its name it's is literally, literally bear, 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 bear. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's great. Uh, and what is that? Uh, English is a weird language. It really is. Uh, there's, but there's a uh, what is it? Oh gosh, now I'm now I'm gonna die. my head's gonna explode if I don't remember this. Okay. You can actually say there's a sentence that makes no sense, and I thought it involved bears, but it might not be bears. It's uh, what is it? This is gonna kill me till I remember. Uh, I'm thinking of the longest sentence in the English language that can be said with only one word. Yes. Is buffalo. Oh, that's uh-huh. what it is. Buffalo, it, buffalo, buffalo. Like, just, it's it's yeah. bu- it's the word buffalo seven times. Buffalo, 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 buffalo. That's right. Yeah, oh, uh, man, that's awesome. Because of the three terms that buffalo can mean. It can mean the animal, the buffalo, buffalo, New York, which is spelled exactly the same, and buffalo also means to harass, harry, or bully. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's kind of hilarious. And then saying it with the right inflection and emphasis. You uh, can almost figure out what it's being said. Kind of, yeah, yeah. But it's the only way you could ever possibly get there. Speaking of inflection and whatnot, uh, Art, did you say that you were planning on auditioning for that audio drama? I would like to, yes. Yeah, I have not had too. the time to so far. Well, we, we're going to have to get on that pretty damn soon because I'm pretty sure the, uh, the deadline's coming up. Probably, which means we're likely not going to make it, but hey. Oh, I'm we'll, a little too busy writing my own at the moment to make that I'm happen. But really excited for that. Dude, I really am too. Like the, the, So the pilot is almost written, and I was revising it a little bit earlier today because I can't leave well enough alone. Yeah. And I, and I saw a spot where I should be able to add a good bit more like dialogue and or information. See, it's yeah. weird because my biggest issue is... Uh, right now is, is making sure that the episodes are long enough. Yeah. I had this habit. I When I write, I especially my novels and things like that, a lot of times my chapters are very short and to the point. Yeah. And I don't know why. I don't know where I developed that. Like, I, But I like that I don't ramble on too much. I but then, get that. And, and I can be very descriptive. Like, I can get to Stephen King levels of description. Now, for those I, of, now, let me be very, very clear by what I mean by that. I'm not saying I'm as good a writer as Stephen King. Not by a long shot. But you what, can be as verbose. I can be quite a bit as verbose. I could spend um, I could spend pages discussing the the I, shade of red on the on the uh, petal of a rose. Absolutely. I grew up reading The Wheel of Time by Robert Jordan. <laughs> I, I, Speaking of verbose. I'm used to wordy motherfuckers. Yeah. Literally, book three to book ten is all filler. <laughs> Wait, what? The, technically, book three to book ten is all filler. Colby, how do you read seven books as and, and, and be- recognize that they're filler and be okay with that? <laughs> because it... 
it's filler in the sense that the main the major things that need done at the end of book three and beginning of book four still need done at the end of book ten or are being done at the end of book ten. Okay, but so that, there are significant yeah, plot points and things like that. Yeah, that you're but just a lot of it is new things that come up within those books that get resolved or new... It's side quests! It, it's, oh my god! It's, it's side quests or it's um, the fact that the the books very... One of the brilliant things about the books is that... Sorry, I'm gonna fanboy gush oh, for a little do it. while. Go for it. Oh my god. Oh my god. I never thought I'd get this chance to put my love for the Wheel of Time on the internet like this. <laughs> Disclaimer, I've never read a single word from The Wheel of Time, so I'm going to be very much so just listening. Yes, you have, because you saw, you saw the uh, panel that Carrie made me. So you've read those many Touché. words. Touche. Touche. <laughs> uh, Smartass. <laughs> hey, technicality. It is. I am technically correct. The best kind of correct. Uh, but the one of the brilliant things about those books, and the reason it takes up so much room, is that every almost every character, including people who just show up as stable hands or uh, someone working at a shop are vitally important to the story. J.K. Rowling stole a page out of that book. To a level that J.K. Rowling motherfucking wishes she could. Uh, We'll argue about that later. There are... Just, Just by virtue of what they did with Pottermore... And, like, if she mentioned, if a character in the book mentioned somebody in a band that they listened to once, that band now exists in our world. And performs at the magical world of Harry Potter. But that's a lot, the fandom that did that, this is actually in his books. Like, actually follows these people. And their actions... In in Pottermore, which is an extension of all of the... Yes, but... I wasn't trying to compare them, I was just saying she's doing something similar to that. So there are... To break it down into main characters, yeah, there's at least fifteen. That's absurd. That's that, that dude had to have like every, walls of his house that were just dedicated that had strings attached uh, to them. He unfortunately died before finishing the last book. Uh, I believe I knew that. Um, but one of the other, probably one of the greatest writers who is alive today, Brandon Sanderson, took over for him and he had he knew that he was uh, likely going to die he knew that he was sick he had been for a very long time and he left such extensive notes his notes his notes to write the story were over 40,000 pages holy fucking shit why didn't he just write it because he didn't have the time to do it right he said that, that was just his note-taking process. That's insane. Now, Brandon when you Sanderson, say that Brandon Sanderson is one of the greatest authors alive today, why Why is that? He is, is it just for his contributions on the Wheel of Time? For that alone, I would consider him so. But also, his own writing is incredibly well-respected and lauded uh, in the science fiction community, in the uh, literature community. He is a fantastic and magnificent writer. Okay. Uh, you can't say he's one of the best because he's one of the best. That makes no sense. I, I understand that. <laughs> so I added a little bit to that. Uh, but even he had to take what um, 
Robert Jordan intended to be the last book and breaking into three. Woo! He had to make three books to finish what Robert Jordan intended to make one because there were so many people who were vital to the story coming through and coming back and tying up ends. Yeah. Like, the... I think altogether there are 14 or 15 books, possibly 16 because there's also a prequel book. Oh my goodness. Um, and they are some of my favorite writing in existence. But, like, it's it's one of the beautiful things. Like, the, the man wrote, like, 16 books. In... And not in, like, an episodic way. They are a single storyline. Wow. It is magnificent. The man, he is a verbose motherfucker. Yeah. Uh, and Never use one word when ten will do. It, I actually get uh, told that I do that way too much when I talk. It's true. I just talk that way. Uh, I feel like I sometimes have a habit of doing that as well, but... hook, kind of like a, uh, a scorpion, and um, they're blue. They actually eat through their hooves. Ew. And they can shapeshift into any animal creature that they touch. Now, they also have the ability to shapeshift into other aliens that they, for which they can acquire their DNA simply by touching them for like three to six seconds. Well, these human children get this ability and uh one of them who's actually a fan favorite his name is tobias uh there is a there's a, a stipulation that you can only stay in your animal form for three hours any longer and you will be permanently stuck in that body and tobias gets stuck in red tailed hawk form i was gonna say i, I think he was a hawk yep red tailed hawk they can communicate telepathically uh, with one another. Within a certain distance. Uh, yep, and okay. the lights actually also have this ability. And so, one of the really cool things that happens is that the Elemist shows up and through a dream gives Tobias the ability to acquire his human DNA again okay. and can limitedly shapeshift back into human Tobias. Human Tobias is wildly in love with one of the other characters. Her name is Rachel. Uh-huh. And uh, it creates a really interesting storyline for him where he has the choice now 
he can be an Animorph again and part of the team and contribute, uh-huh. or he can give up his abilities forever and become a human again. Okay. So, so that was a lot of fun. So he essentially, in his hog form, gets his abilities to turn into other animals, one of which is human. Uh, actually, I but think if he, he might only have the ability to be human again, but maybe I'm wrong about that. I can't remember uh, which way it actually goes. Because uh, that would make more sense, because then, like, if he can turn into other animals, then he's still, like, a contributing right. member of the team. But if he stays human long enough to permanently be a human again, he won't be able to. Exactly. And then he's just human. So there's a good dichotomy there. That I like that sort of storyline. But, like, from what I've read of it, like, there's a lot, a lot of very adult themes in those books. Like, child soldiers essentially uh, being teenagers fighting this war. Yeah. Um, uh, po- post-traumatic, and they have to deal post-traumatic with some stress. Yeah, they have to deal with some super heavy shit, man. Yeah. Like, but, it's it's pretty extreme. Like uh, I said, the Horde-Bashir Chronicles were absolutely incredible, especially because because of the Yurks, which are these slug-like aliens that will slither inside of creatures' heads, take over their brains, and infiltrate the race to be able to take them over. Um, because of the Yurks, Horde-Bashirs are this a- alien race that have, like, spikes that stick out of their knees and their elbows, and they're uh, almost insectile in some ways. Um, they're portrayed almost as evil. Okay. And then you learn that they're a very peaceful race that the Yurks took over. Okay. And there's one Yurk in, partic- in particular who's semi-famous because he was actually t- able to take over an Andalite, which is, like, unheard of. Okay. Uh, because they're uniquely able to resist the Yurks' uh, influence. And uh, I can understand that. And this one was able to take over an Andalite, uh, which, like, they're built to, to kick ass. They're part horse, part human. They're essentially centaurs with a scorpion's tail. Yeah, they're, they're pretty badass. They are super badass. And they can turn into any other alien they've ever touched. Yep. Like, or any creature. Yep. That's, that's pretty useful. Extremely, yeah. That, I can see where Ben 10 got its influence. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I would not be surprised if it was influenced in some way by... Uh, Animorphs, and they, of course, because it's a young adult uh, fiction series, there's a choose-your-own-ending book, which was a lot of fun. Uh, that that I was read. a that was a big thing in the '90s. That I, was a yeah. big thing in the '90s and early 2000s. I actually really want to create. I'm, I'm. I say I'm writing. I'm writing in the sense that I have the idea, have jotted down a few thoughts, and that's as far as it's gone so far. But I think doing an improv live-action play. That does that choose your own ending style type thing. Well, would be so much fun. There's actually um, a couple of plays that do that. One of which is really fun. It's called The Trail to Oregon, based on Oregon Trail. You don't say. But I, I'm putting it out there, uh, but that does that. It like the audience chooses the names for the characters, chooses which background That's you had, uh, and makes a couple of key decisions in the storyline, including. No spoilers here. They tell you at the beginning of the play who dies at the end because uh, someone dies every time and you, the audience gets to choose through what happens, who it is. So, uh, and it's a lot of fun. See, that's the smarter way to do it, but the way that I want to do it is to give them a basic storyline and then just force the actors to essentially improv their way through the whole thing based on what the audience says with only a very skeletal idea of how the story should go. That That's just... The, Jeremy, you're you're describing LARPing. That's not entirely <laughs> untrue. Yeah, I'm a little bit. But, but LARPing you want specifically people... with an audience. That as a performance. 
That, that's not that far off from just LARPing. Yeah, but most, <laughs> most if not all the folks who are there during a LARP are, are doing LARPing. the LARP. Exactly. Yeah. These, these would just, so this would just be like LARPing on stage. Well, <laughs> well hey, we have D&D on Twitch being streamed. Why not LARPing someday? Why not LARPing on stage? I, I'm just saying, it would be interesting. It would be a thing. Uh, I, I think that would be really cool. And uh, actually, uh, so every year Dungeons & Dragons does this, Wizards of the Coast does this huge, huge stream for Dungeons & Dragons. Covers, stream of many eyes? Uh, before that, it was Stream of Annihilation. Okay, so they just use like themes from within yeah. the game to describe it. Yeah, and every year it, they use it as a big uh, commercial, essentially, for whatever they're producing that Colby, year. we're going to have to get on that someday. Oh, my God. It would be so cool. It would be so good. Uh, but, yeah, they, they produce this big stream that uh, tells people what's going on and gets them super hyped for it. Well, this last year, they essentially did a... It was an interesting combination of LARP and escape room. Ooh. Yeah. It, uh, so, like, each of the characters had to use their character abilities and the things that they could do, and they had special tokens for it to get through the puzzles. But it also had a very escape room vibe to it, where you had to, like, figure out the clues, and it wasn't all about RPing. It, okay. it was interesting. And they, instead of rolling dice, they pulled cards. Oh, really? Uh, that, is, that is actually a very common thing in a lot of LARPs, is to pull cards instead of, say, roll dice. Different sessions, you do different things. Um, uh, one really fun one I did was rock, paper, scissors. Uh, <laughs> and I was I, I was so good at that because I'm actually really good at rock, paper, scissors. Okay. It's one of those things that, like, there's actually a lot of strategy and reading people that goes into in the same way that people think, oh, poker's just random luck. No, there's a lot of, like reading that goes on in poker and in rock, paper, scissors, and I'm really good at that. See, I'm also fairly good at rock, paper, scissors, but I don't do it consciously. I just kind of let my subconscious read the person and then yeah. just go for it. Yeah, but that's basically it. I I am just... I don't have a subconscious. I am conscious of my subconscious. I might not, I might not have control of it all the time, but I know what it's doing. Fair I'm enough. angry at it quite a bit. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you were... You were talking about, uh, I, I think this is probably something we can go into a whole other episode about, but young adult fiction yes. is a wonderful genre, uh, and I, I think we've talked about it a little bit before, but uh, it's one of the things that I love about Harry Potter is that it starts out as young adult fiction and grows with you yes. as you aged, yep. uh, and as the people who read it aged. Like, I was literally Harry Potter's age as he went through. That must have been a, a unique experience. It was. Uh, I remember being 17 when the last book came out and just being like, oh god, this is me. Uh, uh, but a lot of young adult series, they tend to go in and out of fashion because they stay in their like their intended age, age group. Oh yeah, okay. Uh, or uh, now one thing that some modern ones are doing is they will have, like, series set in different age blocks. Okay. Um, uh, one I, we actually just got from my girlfriend's daughter is uh, about this uh, mouse ballerina going through adventures. And there's a sequel s- series that is 
set in like middle school instead of like early elementary school. Okay. And things like that. Um, I, I think the young adult space is such a fascinating place to write and uh, honestly a really good place even for adults to read because so many of the things in there are very thought provoking intentionally. And a yeah, lot I was of. I say we would have to be intentional. You would yeah. And a lot of authors use that space because they know that that's the age where a lot of readers are very perceptive and very uh, receptive to it. Okay. Uh, one of my favorite ones is uh, A Series of Unfortunate Events by yeah. Lemmy Snicket. Anyone, I am so sorry, anyone who is an adult who hasn't read them yet, because you lose out on one of the greatest experiences possible, which is reading them once as a child and then once as an adult. Because to pick up those subtle nuances. It's yeah. so different. Really? It's so different. Well, because when you're a young, when you're a teenager, you're identifying with the Baudelaire's. But then when you're an adult... No, you still identify with the Baudelaire's. Oh, fair enough. But you just... You appreciate so much more, at least I especially did, so much more of what is going on like, you, I, you still identify with the Baudelaire's, but you understand so much better what is going on around them that is leading to all of the horrible Calamity. bullshit yeah. that they're dealing with. Uh, and it's it's ludicrous and dark, but in a perfectly accessible way to children. Okay. It's great. Um, so I wanted to ask you, and I honestly think that we could do a whole... You want to talk about separate episodes? I feel like we could launch into a whole one about this. But um, so, which uh, which Harry Potter house do you identify? I'm a Hufflepuff. I, I know we, we talked about this in our beginner episode. In our we might have. Uh, and then, so given the idea that you graduated, what profession would you have gone into? Do you think uh, in the Harry Potter world? Yes. Uh, that's that's interesting. Uh, or or instead of which one like. You can either go along the lines of which one do you think you would have ended up in or which one do would you like to have ended up in? It, it's weird because we actually don't see too many professions we in the We see all books. of the professions. Well, you hear most, about them at the very least. Most of the professions are, like, you hear about, you work at the ministries. You're an or, so you're, like, a police officer. You yeah. are a medic. Or a teacher. Or a or teacher, a shop owner, or, or shop. Yeah, like, that's that's not a fantastically long list. No, well, I, or, I yeah. didn't even. I, there are there are many, 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 many more. Like there are just I, I'm uh, the, the dragon is, tamer and I, professional. I'm sure that there are a lot of jobs that aren't described. We just don't expressly get. Honestly, no. I know exactly what I would want to do, and it has nothing to do with my Hogwarts house. But it is just, it was always one of the most fascinating parts of Harry Potter that I wanted to be a part of. Uh, and I think it has a lot to, actually, you know, you know what? It does have a lot to do with my house. I would want to be a wand maker. Okay. Uh, wand lore is fascinating in the Harry Potter world. It really especially, is. Especially uh, in the last book, wand lore is fascinating. Right. Before that, no one literally talks about any of it at all. Uh, that's not true. Other than the wand chooses the wizard. They also talk about it in the first one, how the core of Harry's wand had a uh, that particular, what was it, uh, Phoenix? Uh, yeah, the Phoenix feather had a twin because it was from Fox. Uh, but other than that, you know, you don't hear a lot about, like, 
they don't the, spend a lot of time on it yeah. now. But once you get to the last book, she digs so much deeper into that, into that, uh, like, wand lore and the fascinating nature of it and how it's all, it, it's kind of one of those, uh, you have to just have it skills. Like, I would love, I would love to do that. And it's not something that, if the Harry Potter existed, I probably would not have the skills to do or be one of those people. It would be very unlikely. But if I had the option, that would be it. Okay. Um, uh, other than that, I would probably end up as a teacher. Okay. I believe. Um, uh, being a teacher is something that I've already heavily flirted with in real life, but especially teaching magic. Like, yeah. In any capacity. So what, what school do you think you'd end up teaching? School of magic, I mean. Uh, what aspect of magic? That is fascinating. Um, Transfiguration always really interested me. Okay. Like, uh, that was always one of my favorite ones, the idea of, uh, like, turning one thing into another. Because there's... and, And potions. Potions was another one that just fascinated me. A lot of the other ones are very, you know, traditional magic. Right. Uh, like... Runes or charms, charms things like that. Yeah. Those sound cool, but uh, probably either potions or uh, transfiguration. Yeah. Awesome. And what about yourself? I think I would. Uh, so or an R. Let's be fair. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, I have I have too much paladin in me not to be <laughs> not to defend people. Uh, I would likely have been a chaser all through college. Uh, if they did college, I don't think they did college. I would have, I would have gone, I would have attempted to be a professional chaser for one of the teams. Uh, in cha- chaser fits you really well, or a keeper. I think you would do really well as. Hey, I've never really liked being a goalie. Fair, but I think you would be good at it. Oh, okay, I accept that. Uh, and then I would. I would, I would have been a beater if I would ever played. Oh yeah. Uh, Quidditch. Let's be fair. And uh, I also would have. To have uh, studied dragons, so I would have done something very similar to what Bill Weasley did. Okay. Um, especially if dragons were like a real thing. Yeah. Like they are in that. Like I, I would have been all over that. Uh, uh, so I if actually, professional athlete didn't work out, or even if it did, but you know you have to retire at some point. Yeah. I would have been studying dragons as well. I actually in uh, middle school had quite a long stint. Uh, I went down a really deep rabbit hole of studying uh, cultural etymology of dragon lore. Oh? Yeah. Uh, I had I had an entire notebook, like, 80 pages deep, analyzing different mythical creatures from ancient lore that showed up in, like, the, those cultures' versions of dragons. You know what's really interesting about dragons is that they seem to show up in every single culture. Well, it's because uh, what, we, what we generally think of as a dragon... Fills a lot of the like the base human needs for fear. Yeah, that's fair. Hu- humans as cultural beings kind of need fear. We we are our brains are still really primitive in a lot of ways. Yep. Especially like millennia ago when a lot of uh, uh, myths were written. When a lot of like especially older cultures uh, ecologies were written. Like they're cultural mythos and having a mythical entity to be afraid of we needed that 
in a lot of ways. And the idea of it being generally uh, serpentine or reptilian is very alien to us as mammals. Yeah. Uh, reptiles are something that creep most people out Agreed. to some degree. Uh, uh, a lot of them oftentimes have association with fire. Because, again... Uh, fire is an incredibly powerful thing in a lot of mythos. But also, especially in European mythos, uh, the ideas of salamanders being of fire because, you know, we would toss logs onto fires and then lizards would crawl out of them that were using it for a home, mm-hmm. thinking they were born of the fire, and that was a big thing that linked a lot of reptiles to fire in mythology. Um, so it was a fun little jump. Yeah. Uh, and uh, in eight, a lot of Asiatic cultures, you had things like uh, the giant salamanders. Like, giant. By when they say giant in Asia, they fucking mean it. Those things are like five feet long and are and occasionally drown children. Oh my god! Like they are dangerous. Do we have any battery left? By the way, are we even recording now, or are we just talking? No, we're still recording. Okay, I wasn't sure. You said we were only at like fifty percent. Well, yeah, but the the app that we use doesn't actually chew through battery all that quickly. Okay, so we, we should. I, so I've been checking just periodically. Just wanted to check. Uh, but yeah, uh, well, so they, like, Asiatic were, dragons have that. About them being used as a fear tactic, and uh, there's another co- there's a there's another podcast that I listen to called The Constant. Okay, a history of getting things wrong, which you and yeah. I have talked about before. It's done by a man named Mark Chrysler, okay. who has uh, a strangely soothing and wonderful voice to listen to. Okay, uh, and just this wonderful lisp. But anyway, <laughs> um, he talks about. Uh, cartographers at one point uh-huh. who uh, they actually put that on their map here there be dragons yeah uh, because now and he goes way into like the actual creatures that showed up at that time and stuff like that but that was used because they just didn't know, know what, what was, was there, there. and no dragon, idea yeah dragon was a placeholder for here is the unknown uh, essentially, yeah. They're just like, you know what? I don't know what's there. So in order to stop people from like pointing out the fact that I'm full of shit, here there be dragons. Don't go here. Yeah. And guess what? That's effective. Uh, it's, it super was. It's like, it, it's, it's the Scooby-Doo technique. I'm going to pretend this place is haunted so no one comes here. Yep. And then those damn kids. Those, those meddling kids. And that rotten dog. But yeah, th- uh, those sorts of things are a lot of times linked to base human fears that come through very consistently um and they 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 aren't always they aren't always like terrorizing or terrifying but they are always powerful yeah um it's it's one of those things again like i did a ton of uh cultural research in this i find every culture fascinating there's something about most it's not all that are quite fascinating I, you learn a lot about a people by their mythology, um, because like there's there's definitely something to be said for the idea of like religion and myth being used as a tool to control people to a certain degree. But it's also that those stories that are told are how people teach lessons, Correct. especially to children. Uh, and especially in times where there wasn't necessarily a written form. Like, the written word changed how humanity could develop. Right. Because all of a sudden, you didn't need the same person to be able to live, live long enough to tell everyone the story. He could <laughs> write it down. 
And, and where he did that high leisure. Yeah, to the point where I, I believe it was Aristotle or Plato, whichever one came first, hated writ- the written word because he, he said it made his students lazy because they didn't have to remember it all. Because, you know, somehow that is, I mean, it's because not that's, effort. Because that's how he learned. Yeah. That, that was how everyone before writing, because writing had just been invented in the West... That's how they learned, was by memorization. That's how you could tell if someone was smart. Could they remember it? (laughs) Yeah. Ridiculous. And, like, obviously nowadays we know that it simply allows for the accumulation of more knowledge and for that knowledge to be passed on uh, exponentially by its growth. But that was a big change. And before that, you had to create characters who people could live up to. You had to create monsters that represented concepts that kids could learn. Hence Hercules and the Hydra and things like that. Um, uh, And honestly, we still do that nowadays. If we, I want an entire episode going through the analogies of superheroes to ancient myth. Oh, yeah. In so many capacities. They they are literally one and the same. Uh, Modern superheroes are for America our mythos. They are our 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 literally literal heroes. They are our literal heroes. They are a pantheon who has Olympus was what I was trying to say. They they have crossed decades. They are the thing by which people um, measure themselves. Well, and then look also at our sick children. Yeah. Right. Who do they turn to? Uh, for comfort and for uh, moral strength uh-huh. while they're in these terrible battles they look to superheroes uh, I remember there was on, on on the sci-fi channel there was a competition show where people created their own superheroes made themselves up as those heroes and went on a competition who with wants Stanley. to be a superhero yeah I auditioned for that. <laughs> I remember that. My uh, One of the graphic novels that I am writing this, and hope to produce at some point was born of that competition show. I remember that. I remember watching that video. It was really good. Um, but uh, the guy who eventually won at least the first season, because I think there was two or three seasons of it. Yeah. Uh, but the guy who won the first season at one point, he uh, very emotionally to Stan Lee uh, 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 told him that he looked to Stanley much as his father or grandfather because he did not have a father himself growing up. Right. And the characters that Stanley created, particularly Spider-Man, taught him the lessons he needed to learn that made him who he was today. Uh, I remember uh, that as well. Yeah, and uh, Stan got really teary-eyed at it. Well, yeah. Uh, and and that's the sort of thing where there are so many people. Like, I'm one of them. I model a lot of my ethics and my personality on what I grew up with. Right. And everyone does, again, going back to people don't realize the impact that media has on them. You absolutely take some characters' uh, ethics into yourself. Now, unfortunately, a lot of people choose some really shitty characters to do that with. Agreed. Uh, it's like uh, something I really liked that I saw online was uh, it, it was a warning to women and girls that if they ever meet a guy whose favorite show is Rick and Morty, 
or uh, shows like it fucking run, just leave, because there are shows like Rick and Morty, or, or oh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, where, like, the main characters are terrible people, and a significant amount of the show is analyzing how terrible they are, and breaking that down, and showing you that. Okay. And it's one thing to like that show and to appreciate it, but for it to be your favorite thing, especially for young men, generally means that they identify as that character. Oh. Uh, which a lot of people do. Oh. Yeah. So they are identifying as that sort of sociopathic character. And uh, it's, it, it's like I said before, Beavis and Butthead Syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. They take on that identity and use that as a driving force rather than a cautionary tale. That's a little upsetting. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of things like that. Like The Punisher. There are so many people who idolize The Punisher, and it terrifies me. Yeah, I mean, you and I have argued about this before, but at the end of the day, there are a lot of people who share your viewpoint but have a different opinion on it, and then do idolize him and do take the more extreme aspects of his nature and his uh, characterization and take it to heart and decide that that is the kind of person that they want to be, despite yeah. not having the same motivations that he had. Yeah, and it's, it's... It's misappropriated in a lot of ways, and I see it a lot in the conservative, uh, Republican kind of side of people. Well, also, the same guy that has the terrorist hunting license bumper sticker will wear a Punisher t-shirt. Yeah, uh, or, uh, the, the no fear... Uh, stuff. Oh my god. The fake MMA stuff. Well, that's not No Fear. That's, uh, no, uh, that's, uh... Shit, what is it called? Uh, wh- whatever that is. Yeah, I can't remember it either, but I know what you're talking about. I'm sorry, yeah. No no Fear is the, uh, like, barbed wire and, uh, camo stuff. No, like no Fear is that, is, is, that was the brand from back in the 90s, with the eyeballs. Uh, but they're... With the pissed off eyeballs. Yeah, but nowadays they're also a thing and they do, like, fake MMA stuff too, I think. Uh, we'll have to check into that, because I don't think that's true. Like, there definitely is a company that does the fake MMA. Yeah. No, is it called Tap Out? Tapped Out, yep. Yeah. Tap, tap Out, yep. Um, they, they do that, and there was another one, and I can't remember the name of it, that was kind of big there for half a minute, and it was sold in, uh, one of those stores in the mall that has closed out since yeah. then. Yeah. Well, anyway. it, it's like, uh, one of the, one of the examples I always go to is the comparison between, um... Superman and Wolverine. Okay. Uh, both relatively indestructible characters, both very strong. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people claim that they don't like Superman because of those things. He's unbeatable. He always wins no matter what. Like, well, uh, there's Wolverine no Wolverine doesn't go along that same line. Uh, at all. He has very much, he had very much become that for a very long time, and those are the stories most people like of him. Like, he has his vulnerabilities and, like, pain and whatnot. Dude, this is the same guy that was torn in half by the Hulk. But, but literally stitches himself back together and and other incarnations kills the Hulk. Like, fair. But the difference is that most of the time, Superman is a kind, good person who uses his violence as his last tool, but Wolverine is violent and angry and is, in many ways, especially through, like, the 90s and 2000s, just as indestructible as Superman in a lot of ways, 
That's fair. But he's angry. And a lot of some people's favorite stories of Superman are the ones where he breaks, like the Injustice storyline. Yeah. They like mean, angry, bad Superman. Whereas those are some of my least favorite versions of him. I like them because they show, uh, like, I enjoy the idea that it, oh, that, that breakdown of that character. I do too. But I don't necessarily identify with it. Yeah, I, I like them because they show you how important real Superman is. Right, yeah. Regular Superman is. And it's nice in the Injustice storyline because so-called real Superman comes from another dimension and Uh, whoops that ass. Yeah, it, it, to me, it shows you how hard Superman has to work to be good Superman. Right. Uh, It's like one of my favorite storylines with Spider-Man out of a very long time. Spoilers for uh, Superior Spider-Man from a couple years ago. It was like a three-year run. It's great. Uh, But Dr. Octopus is dying and in a battle with Spider-Man, switches minds with him. Oh, yeah. And Peter Parker literally dies in Dr. Octavius' body. Oh, my gosh. And Doc Ock is, is Peter. He is his body. But there's sort of Peter's consciousness and brain in the back of his head yelling at him sometimes to be a good person. And, huh. like, in that in that moment, like, in certain moments, uh, Otto is just like, oh, my God. You could have done it at any time. You could have killed me any time you wanted, but you didn't. Why didn't you? You had every chance, every power, but you choose, still choose to use it this way. And it goes through, like... Essentially, after that moment, Doc Ock goes, No, you know what? I can be a hero, and I can be a better hero than you were. <laughs> and it goes through three years of him trying, and in some some ways, being a really good hero, but constantly struggling with his nature. And uh, at the end, a spoiler for the end of it, uh, the Green Goblin ends up figuring out what was going on, and that Otto is in Peter's body. And... Uh, it comes to the point where, like, Otto is going to be killed by the Green Goblin, and he's just like, face it, Otto, you can't win. You're not the hero. And Otto, and uh, Octavius in uh, Peter's body just goes, you know what? You're right. I can't win because I'm not the hero. I can't do it with this. And he just goes, but I know who can. And he just lets himself fade. And he goes, you were right, Peter. Go ahead. Oh, shit. I didn't know that. I never got a chance to read that. That's Oh, that's so good. And and Peter takes back over, and he wins. Well, of course he does. There there are... There's a couple storylines, by the way. That same, uh, like, concept is one of the really good things about the Percy Jackson books. Uh, Oh? Yeah. There's a good bit of that that happens. And it's fantastic. Uh, but just this idea that it takes so much work to be a hero, and so many people think that by not by not hurting people, you're taking the easy road. And in right. actuality, it takes so much strength. One of my favorite things about Trigun. Trigun is one of my favorite anime ever. And it is all about that concept of how much strength it takes to be a pacifist. Right. Uh, there's a, there's another there's another storyline that I love that has this concept. Lex Luthor. Lex Luthor 
gets Superman's powers. And that was about to happen eventually. Uh, and for a moment, he's exulting. He's just like, yes, I finally did it. And then his face just starts to twist and distort. And he just falls onto his knees. I think this was uh, an Alan Moore storyline. Because okay. Alan Moore likes to do this with his characters. Yeah. Uh, and he just falls to his knees and he starts bawling. And the villains around him are just like, "What? what's going on? And he's just like, I can hear everything. I can hear everyone. This is what he lives with all of the time. And he And he says, and in this moment, I know what he knew. That we're alone and all we have is each other. And that's oh, wow. why he does this. Be- because he, Superman knows that the only things that we have are each other to help each other. And so he does. That's interesting. It, it, it's also one of those interesting things where uh, Lex Luthor... Lex Luthor thinks he's the hero. Like, yes, he, that's he true. He absolutely thinks that Most he's the hero. Most villains do. Uh, some... Some villains are very self-aware that they're not, though. Like, one of the times where you it comes up is... You literally disagreed with me. Uh, I said most villains do, and you're like, yeah, but some. Well, yeah, I'm not yeah. disagreeing with that. Uh, in, in particular, one of those uh, him thinking he's the hero moments comes up when uh, Lex Luthor teams up with the Joker. Uh, comments, because the Joker takes the piss out of everyone, including the people he works with, especially when they think they're better than him, because the Joker knows that no one is better than anybody. Yeah. Uh... Uh, Lex com- uh, the Joker comments about how it would about how Superman think- thinks he's a hero but he's really not and it would take a real hero to beat him and to know they're not the hero like just jabbing at the fact that Lex Luthor thinks he's the hero and the good guy okay. and the Joker sees right through it and knows just how terrible Lex Luthor is gotcha. and Lex gets really pissed about it at one point because he, he realizes what's got, what uh, the Joker's been saying. Okay. And the Joker just laughs at it the whole time. Because that's what he does. Yeah. Uh, but it, I I love the idea of heroes being heroes. He, and obviously, Spider-Man is one of my favorite heroes. So I I like when those heroes have real struggles. Okay. And, ha- and sort of have to work to be heroes. Like, it's not just something that happens. They have to make the decision. Because I think that is a decision you have to make. I agree. You have to choose to do the right things. Sometimes you make that decision just because it makes you happy. It makes you happy to make other people happy. Right. Uh, And sometimes you do it because you just think it's right. There's a bit of an obligation to it. But if you're still doing the right thing, hey, good for you. Uh, But... Once you're able to decide what the right thing is, and most most yeah. of them have a habit of arguing with themselves over their course of trying to be a hero over whether or not they are doing the right thing. And how the, there's one of the big uh, struggles in for a lot of heroes is the struggle between, uh, especially for Marvel's heroes, is the struggle of the balance of uh, what is good, what, how much can I or should I do for myself. Versus how much of myself do I give? Right. And that's a something that they sometimes very carefully have to balance and oftentimes fail at. Like a lot of the Especially Spider-Man. A lot yeah, a lot of the struggles of Marvel's characters are balancing how much of themselves they can or have to give versus keep for themselves. Uh, and DC's characters 
that's a little less what they do. Um, well, because so often they're the last remaining son or the parents are dead or something along those lines where it comes to a DC character. Sometimes, but it, it's also a lot of... It, it does come up occasionally for DC's heroes, especially... Occasionally? When, no, I'm saying the uh, how much of myself do oh. I give. That comes up sometimes for DC's heroes. Uh, one of my favorite, Mask of the Phantasm, is literally all about that, and it's one of the best uh, Batman storylines. The Christopher Nolan run is basically all about that. Yeah. About how much of myself do I have to give before I can be myself again. Uh, and those uh, those storylines are very good, but DC's stuff tends to be much more conceptual. It's like this concept versus this concept. Fight until someone wins. Yeah. Which a lot of characters just do. It's uh, Alan Moore, I think it is, has... No, Grant Morrison has a run on Animal Man that literally breaks down to that. Like, Alan Moore writes himself into the book, and Animal Man knows he's a comic book character. Like, oh, wow. It's just like... I love breaking that fourth wall. Where am I? What is this? Oh, my God. And Alan Moore is just... Uh, and, and he's just like, wait, you're the one who made, like, my family die, and you're the one who makes me fight these people all the time? And he's just like, yeah. You're, you're an experiment that we use to analyze uh, what is right and wrong. We, we take two people, make them represent a concept, put them in uh, colored uniforms, and fight them against each other. Don't laugh. We do it in the real world, too, to solve our problems. It's true. Yeah. Uh, and whoever's left is right. <laughs> like, and he yeah, what's it. that old Confucius, Confucius say? More not determine who is right, more determine who is left. Yep. <laughs> but it's, it's one of those things that really breaks down like comic book characters and the roles that they fill uh, and it's fascinating it I, could, I could go on for hours about the roles of comic book characters indeed however we're going to cut a short right there because we're actually almost to the end of like one of our journey and that's actually also going to bring us to a point where I'm pretty sure the battery on this uh, tablet is going to crap out um, and we've also been recording for nearly two hours, Indeed. so... So this is probably an A and B type episode. But uh, we'd love to hear some of your thoughts on uh, on all of the pontification that went on here with this particular recording. Uh, I know that we touched on a couple of topics that we've talked about before. It's going to happen again in the future. It's what you love so much about us. So uh, hit Thanks. us up on any of those uh, social media platforms that we typically discuss and that I will get into when I'm not driving down the road. Thank and you for joining us on our special two-part road trip episode. <laughs> Indeed. And we will catch you guys next time. See ya. Bye-bye. I can't, uh, I need to...